So I think not only was this a moment where our work put somebody into office who ended up being the right person, the right moment, the right job, but also showed us what politics can be, not just winning a primary, not just shaping a progressive challengers race, but actually putting somebody in office who can shape a community and show people the impact of their work. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today, Daniel Darrisseau and Griff Gray, run a company called Vote Shift that focuses on winning campaigns and building progressive power in the Southeast. They've worked on key municipal races in cities like Birmingham, Little Rock, Houston, and Memphis. And they've really connected how policy change can result from new leadership. I enjoyed hearing their story, how they came together over time to build a firm, what they look for in clients. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Daniel and Griff from Vote Shift. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Dan and Griff, welcome. Would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies? Dan, why don't you start? Yeah, my name is Daniel Darso. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I've lived here my whole life. I went to University of Montevallo, majored in political science. Around the end of my time in college in 2015, Bernie Sanders announced his run for presidency. And I got really fired up by that campaign and started a lot of grassroots advocacy on my campus. That ended up leading to a viral Reddit post, which caught the attention of the national campaign and then got a call asking to be an intern. That was kind of my foray into politics as a whole. I didn't understand that political campaigns were these big, giant enterprises that had 700, 800 people on board doing all these different tasks, talking to voters, all these different things. So that was kind of like my intro into politics and very quickly thereafter, was offered a full-time position as a field organizer on the Bernie 2016 campaign. From then, was able to work on a couple of congressionals, a Senate, and then at the end of the 2016 cycle, come back to Birmingham and find an incredible candidate who was running for mayor here named Randall Woodfin, and really put my you know skills to the test there. We were up against an incumbent who had been in office for 40 years, one way or another, in City Hall really entrenched incumbent, and we were able to take him on and win with 58% of the vote. That kind of was the springboard into what all we do now, which is a lot of focus on mayoral candidates and progressive candidates across the South. So in 2018, Griff and I worked on Frank Scott's race for Little Rock mayor, started kind of feeling, oh, wow, we can really start building something together. It started taking a, you know, a couple years to really put it all together. But you know, in 2020, Hot back on the Bernie 2020 campaign. I did advance, Griff did national field, and we continued our partnership in different ways throughout all these years. And then come 2022, where we said, hey, we could put all this stuff together, all these things we've learned. You know, I've worked in communications, I've worked in digital, I've worked in advance, Griff has worked in field, he's worked in the national level, in campaign HQs for presidential campaigns. What if we put this all together into one outlet? called Vote Shift and take on some big campaigns and try to like really focus on building progressive power in the Southeast. What's your version of that, Griff? <laughs> well, first, thanks for having us on. Great to be here. So my name is Griff Gray. I'm originally from suburban Chicagoland and I went to school in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I actually dropped my political science major to study music full-time. And being in New Orleans was really incredible 
not for the least of which because I got to volunteer in schools. And I actually spent a lot of time coaching middle schoolers in debate in a failing middle school in New Orleans, which completely changed my life. I had been doing some school advocacy and organizing around LGBTQ issues in high school. And I think my real eye-opening moment was when I had to testify as a seven-year-old so my lesbian aunts could adopt my cousin. I had no idea why it was necessary, but I realized that my voice had crazy value and power. In fact, my cousin has graduated from high school. Now he's going to college. And I didn't know or realize that a moment as trivial as a little kid dressing up in a suit and explaining why his aunts were so great could do something as big as expand my family. And in college, I did some environmental organizing. You know, the rising sea level and fossil fuel divestment was a hot topic in New Orleans. But really, when I was working in schools and giving these middle schoolers a platform to use their voice and talk about issues in the world, it blew my mind. And I just wanted to have like a more bird's eye view of not only education, but just how I could make an impact. And when Bernie mania was sweeping the nation in 2015, I really wanted to be a part of it. And I think my story in politics is one of like loose threads and near misses. And I was really fortunate that I had a friend who was in a philosophy class with me who ended up being a field organizer on Bernie. And he posted about his experience on Facebook and I messaged him. And later that day, I was on the phone with my future boss when I ended up being a canvasser in New Hampshire for Bernie. And knocking on doors in the snow was the first glimpse of electoral politics for me. And the thing that really changed everything was my going in early and learning how to cut turf and manage field and van. And boy, that was the coolest thing ever. I went from humble canvasser who maybe exaggerated my canvassing experience to get the gig to somebody who was so passionate about field management, all the like tiny intricacies of maximizing your efficiency on turf. And the rest was really history. I was lucky enough to be in a position to work on a congressional campaign later that year. And that's where I met Daniel. And our connection was really a tenuous one too. Daniel was the very last person who we brought on to a very crazy congressional campaign. I was running in South Florida. And again, this was my first year in politics. And Daniel was somebody who didn't have a ton of experience, but I could tell we had a special kinmanship just over the phone. And bringing him on started our relationship and he ended up bringing me out to Birmingham. And as Daniel mentioned, us electing Randall Whitfin for mayor in Birmingham was the start of everything. It was the first time either of us had won a race that put somebody into office, just showing the power of our effort and building relationships in a community, talking to people directly, direct voter contact. All of this really clarified all of the different types of advocacy and organizing that we had had in our lives and sort of set us on this path of working in politics for good. Hey, Griff, I want to follow up with some questions about the the story you just told. So the family that you grew up in, is that a political family? No, I come from a family of artists. So my dad was a community college professor. My mom is a knitter and librarian at the time. And we actually grew up in a very homogenous town. But my aunts in Portland, Maine, were trying to grow their family. And they actually adopted little boy from Louisiana. And their adoption story was sort of a tumultuous one. But yeah, I'm so grateful it worked out because Max and Miles, my cousins, are an important part of my family. And yeah, really grateful that I had sort of a diverse family experience in that way. Yeah, the idea of you testifying at seven, pretty moving. You didn't mention that you went to Tulane, but that's the college in uh, Louisiana that I take it. You said you moved into a music major. How was that experience for you? How was that time there? Yeah, that's another situation where I was so lucky where I ended up. I almost ended up at Bard College in New York, which I'm sure is a fine institution. But I'll just be blunt. There was a lot of hipster white boys there. And I'm really grateful that I ended up at Tulane because I grew up in an almost all white town suburb in Chicago. And yeah, coming to Tulane, my main goal was not necessarily be a professional musician, but experience New Orleans and play music there. What did you play? So I played trombone. I also sang. I wrote some music, but... That is a trombone town if I ever saw one. That's right. You know, trombone shorty, obviously a big deal there, but 
I got to play in funk bands in Frenchman Street and play some big gigs on campus. So that was a ton of fun. But yeah, I, I really overextended myself. I was in the choir, musical theater, jazz band, orchestra. Uh, so music was my whole bag until senior year, where I really got more involved in activism again. Uh, big part of Divest Tulane, really trying to get our billion-dollar endowment divested for fossil fuels in a sinking city. So I think that was another thing that really galvanized my re-entry into organizing. What was it about Bernie Sanders that attracted you so much? Yeah, I think just speaking to injustice was the main thing. For me in New Orleans, a privileged white kid, spending my time with these 12 and 13 year olds in, in middle schools who were the most passionate, interesting kids I'd ever met. These were kids who sometimes were the head of their household, who were really the parent to their little siblings. I had children who had lost siblings to gun violence. These kids really had seen more of the world than most people I knew. And it was so empowering to give them a platform. And honestly, one of my big accomplishments at that time was just setting up a bus system so kids could make it to debate tournaments. And it was so empowering. You know, we had a, a format where every semester they would have a tournament on college campus. And so not only could they see, hey, one day you can be at college. No, you get to be there now talking about academic issues, talking about things that may impact your life. And Honestly, I credit that experience and the professor in that class with my activist streak, I'd say. But I would say, Bernie, speaking to the injustice that I was seeing in front of me, and I would say especially money in politics, I think that it was really clear like the difference between the haves and the have-nots. And for me, it was speaking to this sort of like righteous indignation that was growing in me as a young man. So I think Bernie really tapped into what a lot of young people around me were feeling. I was desperate to be a part of it. Got it. I'm going to go back to Dan, and I'm going to try to juggle you two as best as I can. Dan, you went to school in, I take it, rural Alabama that I had not heard of until I was researching. Tell me about Montevallo. How do you pronounce it? Montevallo. Montevallo. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's the only public liberal arts school in the state of Alabama. It's a very small school. I think overall students, about 3,500 a lot of them commuters. So, you know, there's a very tight knit group of people on campus and a couple of folks that like live in the town, um, students that, you know, really built a really incredible community there. It's a, a school that focuses a lot on art, a lot on theater, and a lot on like the social sciences as well. My journey there actually is interesting. I did not graduate high school, I had experience in 10th grade where I was arrested for a small amount of weed. And my school in Alabama, it's Vestavia, it's a white flight suburb of Birmingham, I had a zero tolerance policy. So even though I had good grades, they kicked me out and set a different trajectory for me. I was luckily enough able to take the ACT and be able to go to a four-year school without any trouble. But the first school that accepted me was Montevallo. And I had a couple friends there and I knew it was such a welcoming place and I was in such a vulnerable time in my life too that I you know accepted immediately and it was the best decision I ever made because the friends that I made there the connections I made through my professors what I learned in my classes the motto of the school was unconventional wisdom and I think that is uh, very much what Montevallo embodied I learned a lot in the classroom, but I think I learned so much more outside of the classroom from the relationships I built around campus and with people that lived in town and my friends. It was a really impactful place to be. I'm so glad I went there. Griff talks about sort of his exposure to injustice and how that politicized him. Do you have similar things in what you experienced along the way? Yeah, so I grew up in a really conservative household. It's a funny story that kind of like brought me into like democratic ideology, a liber more liberal ideology. And it was that it was like in 2008, I was like scrolling through channels on TV and saw that Obama was about to give his DNC speech in the Denver Bronco Stadium, I think. And I was like, you know what? I will listen to this. And I did. And it was the most impactful speech I'd ever heard. 
because I realized that I agreed with almost everything he said. It kind of like upended my whole life. I was like, I, everything that I've been taught my whole life that I'm in sixth grade or whatever, going around saying four more years for George W. Bush, just because my family is a big Bush fan into four years later, going to the Urban Outfitters and getting a rock and roll t-shirt just to show out at my very conservative high school. Through the getting arrested and having to deal with the criminal justice system in the way that I did, I was sent to the Jefferson County Juvenile uh, Detention Center, which is in downtown Birmingham. And I was honestly one of the only white people there. And that really showed me so much about like how unjust our, our criminal justice system is. The kids that I met there, the experiences that they had in all of their different communities around Birmingham were very eye-opening to me and made me really want to focus on ending the type of injustice. We shouldn't be demonizing kids for a little bit of weed and sending them to like an institution. How long were you in there? Three months. Tell me a little bit about that time because that's a long time to lose your liberty, even though it's a short time in jail sentences. Yeah, it is. I mean, it was really intense for a 16-year-old. The experience I tried to read as many books as I possibly could. I think I probably blew through like 35, 40 books. That was like all I, all I did pretty much. And then talk to other folks there about their stories uh, on how they got there. Many were there for the same reason I was, you know, did it feel unsafe? No, it did not. It luckily did not feel unsafe at all. The people who managed the facility were incredibly loving really caring for all of the kids and really wanted to see people succeed. Full circle, when Mayor Woodfin took office, I was able to go visit the facility with him as mayor and see some of the old managers of the different wings of, of the facility and talk to them and really, sh and they were so proud to see, you know, what someone had been able to accomplish and, and that like I was able to tell them directly that they made an impact on me. Did it make you want to stop smoking or did you just make you not want to get caught again? <laughs> Both, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't never, I never wanted that to happen to me again, but what it really did was it fired me up and made me want to like create change. So one of the big things that I worked on in the mayor's office here in Birmingham was putting together a pardons for progress program where we pardoned every single minor marijuana possession in the entire city going back to 1972. It was over 25,000 pardons. And now each year, if anyone is arrested for uh, minor possession of marijuana, the mayor uses his pardon power to pardon those people each year. And that's one of my you know, biggest accomplishments. And I think one of the things that really led from that experience into direct policy, because I saw what happened to me and it really upended my life. And I'm very lucky that I was able to get back on the trajectory. But the vast majority of those kids are not able to do that. Yeah, it's just the beginning, a beginning of a descent that is, yeah. And then there's like places with three strike laws. And you can basically have, have taken yourself out of life for minor things. Griff, you alluded to meeting Dan for the first time. Can you talk about these interims which you become increasingly acquainted with each other and kind of trace how you end up being partners how does that grow yeah well like i mentioned there's a lot of like loose threads that have really connected us but also i think accelerated both of our careers i think that we've just had a lot of fortuitous moments in the right order that have led us to where we are today so i think one of those was the tim canova campaign and for those who may not remember, Tim Canova was one of those progressive torchbearers in 2016 who really absorbed a lot of the energy and attention from the Bernie crowd when Bernie dropped out. And I will save for another podcast any of my thoughts or opinions about the candidate. But the campaign itself in 2016 was an extremely interesting one. We had a ton of money to spend, and Tim did believe in field. And through a very strange circumstance... I was hired on as an RFD, despite just having half a cycle of experience. I ended up being the field director and the hiring manager 
and ended up playing some data roles as well. And I was really trying to build a coalition of people who were extremely talented, hardworking, and smarter than me. And we were lucky to have a really diverse field team. We had older people from in the district. We had college students, high school students. It was extremely diverse. And we also tried to hire a lot of people from Bernie World because I was one of those people who was laid off on the mass culling from Bernie's team on a phone call that will remain in infamy for anyone who was on it. And I wanted to hire other Bernie people because I was one of those people who didn't have a ton of experience from the campaign, but wanted to continue to apply myself. And Daniel is one of those people. And coming in from Birmingham, I think Daniel had an interesting experience with the campaign where there wasn't necessarily like official infrastructure to support Bernie in Alabama. But I think that made Daniel's story more interesting because he was entirely grassroots and volunteer led. And so when he joined the team in South Florida, I think his energy and charisma was just really the thing that uh, made us connect. I think Daniel has this infectious energy, especially in person, where he just really energizes and activates the people around him. And he has such a sense of joy in everything that he does. And I am sort of the opposite. I think I'm a friendly guy. I think I'm a nice person. I like to have fun. But when I'm in campaign mode, I'm really a stressed out person. I'm extremely anxious. I have a lot of memories of running the dialer system, which was a lot more manual at that time in 2016. Our data director left in an extremely dramatic event, and I had to become the data director in one day. And moments like learning how to run LiveVox on hundreds of thousands of callers, moments like diffusing racial tension between my candidate and street preachers, There were so many chaotic moments where I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders alone. And somebody like Daniel was always there to help me unwind, explain that I was doing okay. But I think like from that South Florida experience to what we've done since, it's been a really incredible relationship. And the evolution of our working relationship and our friendship chemistry has been one of the most special parts of my life. I have to ask you, Dan, about your side of that story. How did your relationship build over time? It seems like there were a series of steps to that as you got to know each other and trust each other and maybe come to conclusions about each other's charisma. Yeah. So, I mean, when I started on the Bernie campaign and I was trained on Vote Builder and began to learn that system, I was so fascinated by it. And I thought it was the most powerful tool that I'd ever used. I was like, wow, we can do so much with this. You know, uh, what an incredible tool. And I had no idea that it existed before. So my RFD in Kentucky, where I was based, I was in Bowling Green. That was my turf um, for Bernie 2016. It's like a month after that, Bernie had dropped out or was planning to. And she told me that her friend Griff was working on the Canova campaign down in South Florida. So gave him a call. And very luckily, he brought me on. Thank you, Griff. And on that campaign, I looked up to Griff a lot because of his experience with Van. I wanted to learn and absorb like as much as possible from him and the whole team. We had such an incredible team of regional field directors, co-field director, and Griff as field director. It was still to this day one of the coolest and most amazing field programs I've ever been a part of. Our time there made me really look up to Griff a lot. And throughout my time after that campaign, when I moved on to work on the Illinois Coordinated, when I came back to Birmingham, Griff was one of the people that I would call for advice when I needed help, learning something about Van, making a decision about targeting, things like that. And that relationship continued to develop over that year while Griff took a break in politics until near the end of the cycle in Birmingham, where... I said, Griff, I really, really need you here. I want you to be the GOTV director for Randall Woodfin. I think that you could really take us to the next level here in this final month to help us mobilize voters and get as many people out to vote as possible. And it was the best decision I ever made. It seems like that Woodfin campaign had some significant meaning maybe to both of you. Griff, tell me about that campaign. What was it about the candidate? What was it about that race that was important? Yeah, this is an awesome story across the board. So 
I'll just say that for my entirety of the work on the campaign, I was sleeping on an inflatable mattress on Daniel's floor, waking up to a, a little puppy giving me some good morning kisses. It was a very funny setup and just reminiscent of like, I think a lot of practitioners early days in field and campaigning, but it also started our trend of like very deliberate selection of candidates. And so Randall Woodfin was particularly young. He assumed the office at age 36. And in modern times, that made him the youngest mayor of Birmingham by far. And so we have in our career really tried to steer towards historic firsts. Daniel mentioned Mayor Frank Scott Jr. in Little Rock. He was actually the first black mayor elected there. And similarly, we've supported a couple of other mayors who have really made history in their candidacies. But I would say the Randall campaign was so special because the moment that his candidacy occupied in Birmingham, and it was very eye-opening for me. It was my first time really living in a new city for this prolonged period of time. And it ended up being my home. I moved to Birmingham for on and off seven years. I met my wife there. And this is a yet another moment where I'm so glad our paths crossed again because it really uh, helped shape the rest of my life. But I think that Randall had, again, this focus on field, this focus on meeting people where they were at. That was extremely refreshing for a municipal election, for a race in the Deep South. And I think that the energy was so electric on the ground that it made me aware that there's so many other elements of a campaign beyond field. Because field was a big component of the campaign, but so much of the energy came from Randall's events, his speaking, and also all the things that Daniel was doing in communications. I think that we were innovating in a couple ways that people were probably not expecting. One of those things I'm sure Daniel would want to talk about is we did robocalls with Bernie Sanders' voice, getting young people out to vote, for this young black guy running for mayor in Birmingham, Alabama, which a lot of people said was probably not the right move. But as it turned out, we got thousands of new first time municipal voters out and ended up winning with a historic margin against, as Daniel described, an entrenched incumbent. So I think not only was this a moment where our work put somebody into office who ended up being the right person, the right moment, the right job, but also showed us what politics can be not just winning a primary, not just shaping a progressive challengers race, but actually putting somebody in office who can shape a community and show people the impacts of their work. What's your version of that campaign, Dan? I agree with Griff on so many levels. It, the way that we approach that campaign is so different than the way that campaigns have been run around this area for years. It's very much an old boys club or it had been for a long time. There had been no real investment in in like field, grassroots, door-to-door type operations here since the civil rights movement. I met Randall through sending him a request on his uh, website just to contact us and said, hey, I worked on these campaigns. I'd love to help you out. Got a call from him the next day. He said, hey, come to my kitchen table. Let's meet. And then I was on the campaign the next day. He really wanted me to focus on field. That was the key differentiator in our campaign, I I think, in a lot of ways, is that we knocked pretty much every single door in Birmingham twice over, and in some districts, three times over. We heard from people all all across the city that, you know, that kind of outreach was so impactful. That's, you know, one of the big reasons that they voted for Randall. But a misstep that the incumbent made was that they, he just didn't anticipate that. We had expanded the way we wanted to target municipal voters, not just regular municipal voters. We knew that we were running a young, appealing, motivating progressive for mayor, and we could expand that to more younger voters, You know, people who would, would identify as likely a Bernie Sanders supporter in the 2016 primary. Through that, I was took on a field. I ended up kind of being a jack of all trades on that campaign, doing digital communications, Facebook advertising, digital advertising, writing press releases, pretty much everything in one form or fashion. But the big thing that set us apart was like, we were able to tell a story of a man who was the right man at the right time for the city through field and through making compelling digital and video content and really getting it out there. Did either of you ever see the documentary Street Fight of Cory Booker's run for Newark mayor? 
Yes, absolutely. So good. You didn't, Dan? I have not. So I recommend that to you. It is in some ways similar about uh, a young progressive man who is willing to be really of the area he's running from, who is taking on a very entrenched incumbent. And he doesn't win it in the first throw, but he gets it in the second, which is not part of the movie, if I remember. Now he's a U.S. senator for a long time and ran for president. And those are the kind of things that create those kind of victories. If someone makes something of it, as Booker did as mayor, you you create someone who later on, as Alabama evolves, it may someday elect a progressive statewide. It doesn't seem like it right now, but things change. This is part of the whole game of politics and why it matters who wins more local contests like this. One thing that I loved about that campaign was just how scrappy it was. The way that Griff was describing that him, him sleeping on our, our floor for over a month. The way that we hired on that campaign was that we basically just hired the entire Montevallo political science department that graduated in 2017 and turned them into field organizers and really like created a like industry. Like all, all, all of our folks now are, have gone on to work for like really incredible campaigns. Austin Noble has gone on to work for you know, Virginia Coordinated. He worked for Beto and the presidential in you know, 2020. Laura Bimford has done some red to blue flips all across the country. So has Trisha. We really built something incredible there with a really scrappy team of, of young people, all 22 and 23. That picture of Griff sleeping on the couch or on the floor in my house is, is like the personification of that campaign, for sure. Griff, you took... Some time, it appears, out of politics at places like Chili Piper and Rev Genius. What were those and what did you learn during that period? So Rev Genius is just a sales community. So there's a lot of folks involved in B2B or sales as a service type enterprises who are part of that community. Both that and Chili Piper are actually tied to my first boss in politics, whose name is also Dan. So Dan Schmela is the best boss I have had so far. And he was actually my glorious leader in what we called Bernie's Hammer in New Hampshire in 2016. And we called ourselves Bernie's Hammer because we were the deputy field organizer wrecking crew who were really, really trying to push the amount that we could use canvassing in that primary. And we were, <laughs> speaking of scrappy, really trying to be like self-styled mountain folk, tackling the doors as hard as we possibly could. And Dan was so cool. Not only is he the guy who taught me van and really like believed in me that that could be something bigger and better in politics, but he's been sort of a friend and trusted mentor throughout my career. And so we both escaped to Chili Piper for a period of time. He's actually still in startup world. He's working at the company my wife actually sells software at. And Dan is an awesome guy. You got to have on the show at some point. He started a group called Election Day Off, and it's a national group whose goal is to get Election Day Off. And he's worked with tech companies in Atlanta and across the country to get tens of thousands of employees who would typically vote left off of work to guarantee that they're able to cast their votes. He also started the Biden-Harris Professional Network on LinkedIn, trying to use that social platform for good and I know that you're a LinkedIn user. You actually added me, which was a flattering moment last week. But LinkedIn is not a place of great value and high activity in our arena. So that was a noble enterprise. But long story long, I did work step aside from politics for a little bit. And I, unfortunately, even though Chili Piper was a great employer for a year and change, I found it really tedious. I really woke up to the fact that I have to do work that I care about. The difference in my willpower and volition and self-starterness is just night and day. And so Chili Piper was great for a period of time. It supported some things I wanted to do in life. But I've known, I think, before and after that I had to be doing sort of purpose-driven work, election work, the thing that I, I know I'm good at and care about. So, By the way, did you happen to 
become acquainted with Julia Barnes when you were doing the New Hampshire field? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, was I, just, really had her, I just had her episode out on that. I know. Yeah, I saw that and it made me want to reconnect with her. So she was really high up in the state apparatus in New Hampshire and I was a lowly new canvasser, but I really looked up to her and learned a lot from her in the brief time that we shared in Manchester, New Hampshire there. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about one other campaign, which was the recent Houston, looked like it went from mayor to controller campaign. Maybe it's Dan's turn. You guys were both on that to some degree. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Is that through the company now? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that race. I saw the speech online of the victory party of the candidate and he seemed young and charismatic and it sounded like a strong result. But tell me about that race and how did it start and what were your roles? Yeah. So I've actually known Chris for a long time. Chris came to Randall Chris, Chris what, what is his last name again? His name is Chris Hollins. Chris Hollins, yeah. And he actually came to uh, Mayor Woodfin's victory party. It was about five days before Hurricane Harvey hit in Texas. And that was a big formative time for him as he got really involved in the community and help people that were impacted by the major floods that happened in Harvey. Over the next couple of years, he started getting more and more involved in politics, became the Texas Democratic Party's finance chair. And then in 2020, the Houston County clerk left her job and he was appointed as the interim clerk. And this was a really big turning point for him because he basically turned that office into a model for accessible voting that people want to emulate all across the country. He's mentioned in Eric Holder's book, that major example, vastly expanding mail-in voting, 24-hour voting, and the state tried to shut him down multiple times. You know, you can't have these people vote anytime they want, curbside. How dare you? That's not democracy. So he really made a name for himself fighting back against Greg Abbott, fighting back against Ken Paxton in Texas. And after him thinking for a couple of years, I got a call in December of 2021. Hey, I'm thinking about running for mayor. I'd love to have you on the team. So we started that campaign, kicked off in February of 2022 and raised a million dollars, I think, in the first four months. We were off to the races and building an incredible team on that campaign. Our campaign manager, Levi Asher, our general consultant, Grant Martin, and all of this incredible field team that we were putting together. It just felt like we had the momentum. We could do this. We were going to replicate what we did with Randall Woodfin in a city like Houston, the fourth largest city in the whole country. And then in March, Sheila Jackson Lee decided to hop into the race. We had done polling that showed that basically became a statistical impossibility to uh, win the mayor's race if she did decide to hop in. We made the best decision, and Chris you know, really thought about it for a while, but he made the best decision for himself. And he, th- he thought, I want to serve the people of Houston still. And I want to be in City Hall. Uh, so he decided to run for city controller. So he announced in early April that he was leaving the mayor's race and running for city controller. It was an incredible campaign over those uh, next couple months. We were a controller's campaign that almost had mayoral-style funding. We were the only campaign that was able to go up on TV, do the kind of digital outreach that we were able to do and put together the compelling video content. We actually won an award for one of our videos on that campaign called Hometown and really pride ourselves in the way that we went out there and and just captured his authentic story. And I think that really resonated with Houston voters. And I think that he has a long, incredible career ahead of him, especially serving as a, a financial watchdog over one of the largest budgets in the country. I forgot somebody beat Jackson Lee in that primary though, right? What was the story there? His name is John Whitmire. He beat uh, Sheila Jackson Lee pretty badly. It was, I think, 66 to 34. So, you know, we thought we would be the best position candidate to take on John Whitmire. And we still think that we probably were. But, you know, it just didn't work out that way. What did you think of that campaign, Griff? I think Daniel summed it up. I think Chris was a strong candidate for mayor. I think he was a much stronger candidate for controller even though it wasn't his initial aim. I think that, yeah, he was a little too strong in the infrastructure and the energy and the apparatus, not to mention the money. So I think city controller is a great fit for him. I'm obviously relieved and grateful he won. I do want to lift up our political director from that campaign, 
one of the best parts about working around the country and getting to meet so many people is the people who are also galvanized by that experience who end up running for something bigger and greater and following their stories and supporting them. So our political director, Lauren Ashley Simmons, is actually running for state rep in District 146 in Houston. And she is a firebrand. She is extremely strong. And she came to prominence because of a viral recording of her speaking out at her local school board meeting. She is a mom and she was a concerned parent in that call, really taking the school board to task for their lack of attention. And I think she's going to be a strong candidate. I was proud to be one of the first donors for her campaign. I hope other people, especially in Houston, will support her because she is exactly the type of candidate we need to be lifting up. And again, it's one of the most exciting things for me is meeting people around the country like Lauren. Dan, what's the founding story for VoteShift? Why did you pick that name and what is it? The founding story for VoteShift is I have been working in political campaigns for seven, eight years now, and uh, have tried to work in as many different departments as I could. Sometimes it's like self-imposed. I'm on the Woodfin campaign and we have a gap in comms. We have a gap in email fundraising. So I'm just going to do it all. I, after the Woodfin campaign, went to City Hall and worked in the Office of Public Information for two years and really like tested my comms chops out. And then went from there to advance and was able to interact with the candidate and senior staff at a level that I had never been able to do before and really absorbed a lot of information, presidential level staff, and also just being there in the moment in all of these major early states. You just learn a lot that way. And then come 2022, we're working on the Hollands campaign. And I, I have a friend here in Birmingham. His name is Miles Kane. He's a, another one of our members uh, at the company um, who's just one of the most talented and incredible videographers that I've ever ever worked with. And we have worked together since 2017. He's cut all of the Woodfin videos, all the ads for all of my candidates. And we were on the trip in Houston shooting the hometown video that we ended up winning an award for last year. And on that trip, just conversation in the car. What if we started a company? I think we could do most of this under one roof. We could, you know, we can figure out, we can bring production in-house, we can invest in equipment, we can do general consulting and manage campaigns. We've done that, Griff and I. You can be this incredible content creator. We can, you know, put together the pieces for learning digital advertising, television buying, all these things and bring it all under one roof. That was kind of like the birth in that conversation in September of 2022. And it took about six months to kind of really put it together. The name was very hard to come up with. I probably, that was probably the thing that held us up from actually just starting and launching uh, for the longest time, just because I just like couldn't get it. And I just kept trying to like generate two words together to make something make sense. And then all of a sudden, I think it was in January, and then my fiance was just like in the other room and I just yelled out, vote shift. Um, <laughs> it's like as loud as I could in the house. And I was like, that's it. That is it. That's the one. We thought that was an incredible name. And that 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 really kicked off like, OK, we're going to we're, we're getting the branding now. We're getting the website down and we're putting this thing together uh, in a real way. So uh, in March, we launched. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> Pretty much. Griff, what are the challenges have been in making this into a company, which is quite different than staffing or consulting. I think you have to think about the entity almost as a separate thing unto itself. Yeah, that's totally right. And I think from my side, I had done a lot of one-off consulting and I feel like I became known as like the neighborhood election whisperer almost. Like in Birmingham, especially, I've done so many like small little campaigns. And at times it was hard to make it work financially. I think VoteShift has been really cool opportunity to, like Daniel said, bring everything under one umbrella. I will say one of the big challenges you're asking about, Daniel and I have been friends forever. We've worked together on and off forever. But I think starting this company is sort of like a marriage. I'm married a little over a year. It's been wonderful. It has in no way been a battle. We make the joke people talk on TV, marriage is a battle every day. And I think running the company is a battle every day. Like I think it has challenged and stretched Daniel and I's relationship, but I think the key is stretched, not stressed. And I think it's really grown our relationship. You know, we have had to make difficult 
financial decisions, difficult tactical decisions. There have been really meaningful conversations we've had where we have really strongly differed on the approach to take. And I think that approaching this, like you said, as its own enterprise, outside of the actual clients, the campaigns we're working on, has been our true growing experience for both of us. I don't know that we ever fashion ourselves as entrepreneurs. It's weird to call ourselves that. As business owners, even that is a little funny to hear out loud. But it really is true that this is its own thing, and we're trying to treat it and cultivate it like its own entity. And so it's not just a relationship, it's its own enterprise, literally. And um, yeah, there's there's been growing pains associated with that, but I think we're doing things the right way. I think we're being really intentional about who we're choosing. And I think that's one of the most liberating things is we're not just picking the client that is around, that is a Democrat that needs help. And I think because we are outside of ourselves as solo practitioners and we're part of this third party business, it has freed us up to really challenge ourselves in the clients we take and I think more intentionally choose what clients we're taking on. I think I speak for both of us when there's a lot of calls we've entertained or taken the last couple of months where maybe in yesteryear we would have taken them on, added them to our portfolio and been in business right away. But yeah, having to sort of map out our future, chart out the next year, especially approaching a year like 2024. It's a midterm year. I think we could all speculate what's going to happen at the national level, but there's going to be so many interesting storylines and narratives across the country. And we want to be a part of the most interesting ones that suit our niche that we feel we can do the best work in. Dan, when you think about a company early on, often it's hard to see around the corner. It's hard to know what you want it to be in the long run. And I don't think you always need to, but there's a very big difference between the idea of this being a company with the two of you and the idea that you would hire employees and try to grow and become a sizable enterprise that does a lot of things in parallel. And there are good reasons to run it either way. I mean, there are different upsides, there's different lifestyle advantages and so on. And I've talked to people who've tried it both ways. I've talked to people who started with something that was just them or them and a partner, and they've added people on and then shrunk back and found that they didn't like to manage people. And even if it got up to a hundred people, they didn't like that challenge. And I've talked to other people who always wanted to make it bigger, but didn't know how. And then obviously people who are very happy having grown it in size. What is your current thinking about that? I don't want to get you on a different page from Griff, but do you think you're aligned in that? Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a lot of conversations around this about, you know, do we want to be a smaller, more boutique firm that takes on special clients and that we put our whole selves into those clients? Or do we want to do more volume? Um, and with that, you know, means scaling up and scaling people. You know, I'm not sure that we fully landed on what that correct path is, but I, I think that focusing more on the boutique style for now is where we've you know found ourselves. We really have a lot of passion for the candidates that we work for, and we want to be able to you know not be stretched too thin so that we can offer the value that we really can provide to each of, of our clients. So I think right now we've, we've been pretty aligned in the hey, we're going to stay as lean as possible and invest as much of our time and passion into candidates that you know we can choose instead of doing this large volume type work. Griff, what's your ideal candidate? Such a good question. Last year, our main enterprise, the candidate and campaign we spent most of our energy on was Paul Young, who is the mayor-elect of Memphis, Tennessee. And I think on paper, there's so many things that are absolutely perfect, ideal about Paul. He had raised the most money, but had the lowest name ID of the field when we approached him to work with him. There ended up being 17 candidates in an election that had no runoff and no primary. So it was a winner-take-all, plurality-wins race in a city that was familiar to us, but not home to us. Paul was a preacher's kid. Both of his parents were pastors and bishops in a local church. He was extremely involved in the community. He was the director of housing and community development. He was perfect. I think he had such an ideal resume. He was a good man. 
And then when you get in the mix with somebody and you're working with them day in, day out for a year, sometimes things come up. And there are some moments where Paul and I did not agree ideologically. And it was a reminder that what can be perfect on paper may not be perfect in practice. Or maybe my expectation, the thing that I had mapped out and I thought was the ideal, is not. As it happened, I think Paul was right on the money. The way he wanted to market himself, brand his campaign, sell his story, was exactly pitch perfect for Memphis in 2023 in October. And he won with a margin that was as safe as it could be with 17 races and so many serious challengers. But can I stop you on that? What was the bone of contention? What was the key thing that you differed on that he, as the candidate, is has to be the final call? And maybe he was right. So the theme that we differed on was actually one that's so central to Vote Shift. We're progressive guys who came from Bernie World, who've spent our entire careers working in Black America, in especially the Gulf South. And Paul is a guy who's born and raised in Memphis, and he shares those progressive ideals. And he also wanted to make sure that he was campaigning for everyone in Memphis. He knew that while the city is democratic, maybe it's mostly black, maybe the electorate will mostly share his views. He also knew that he had to run for everyone. It's a city that is leading the nation in violent crime. And when you're there, you feel it, unlike some of the other cities that may top that chart. And Paul really wanted to make sure he was not alienating anyone in his messaging. And he wanted to make sure that even if he knew he could have like an hour long sit down conversation with somebody and ultimately they were going to see an issue a similar way, he wanted to speak to people in a way that was comfortable to them. And so our differing of opinion was how we sell his progressive ideals to the city of Memphis. And he believed in what I would call a more conservative traditional approach. And he wanted to paint in generalities and let his actions speak for themselves. And I think he made the right call. And again, long story long, this was so important, I think, for us as our first like major client of the year and really as vote shift, because there's oftentimes where like our beliefs and our best practices match up a little bit differently with the, the principle and what they want to do and how they want to sell their lives. And ultimately, that's always going to be more important. And, and there is a very big difference, as you both, I'm sure, are aware between running a candidate as a progressive in an urban environment than running a candidate in a suburban conservative environment or in a rural conservative environment or just in different parts of the country. The person that fits those districts isn't necessarily going to have the same view as a Tulane undergrad. This is a big country. Turning this to Dan, what lessons do you take from that about like how you view how Biden might have to communicate to the whole country or a, another candidate that faces the challenge of a much more large and cosmopolitan electorate? I think that governing is very hard. And when you get into that position, you have to govern for everyone. When you're the mayor of Birmingham, you have to govern for everyone in the city. When you're the president of the United States, you have to govern for everyone. You would think that, but we, we've we had some presidents who haven't viewed it that way of late. But yes, you're, well, you're one of them's trying to come back and govern for right. a small number of people. But go ahead. <laughs> you're supposed to do that. It's hard to make everyone happy in those situations. So I think, you, were you asking about how to... I was thinking a little bit of Mario Cuomo, when he was a governor of New York, talked about campaigning in poetry and governing in prose. If you listen to Barack Obama's speeches, which were rather inspiring, he often spoke very, very broadly and was, I think, heard well by a wide swath of people. And that was very effective in reaching a big country. It didn't reach everybody, as we could see, but it reached a majority of people very effectively. I sometimes wonder about people overlearning lessons based on the geography they work in. And that may work well while you're running lots of mayor races, but then if you got to run a statewide in Arkansas, it's a hell of a lot different than running in Little Rock, right? 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, you have to meet people where they're at is what you have to do. You have to, you can't just like carbon copy a campaign from a municipality and put it into a rural or suburban district. You have to go and you have to actually talk to the people there and find out what issues matter the most to them. And if you're going to represent them, you have to come in with an open mind that maybe some of the assumptions that you have may be wrong and you need to listen to individual voters, organizations community leaders all across that district to shape the the way your campaign is and the way that your governance is. Griff, you could have had a conversation with a mayoral candidate where that person's determination to campaign in a certain way wasn't going to work. How do you approach a conversation where you're pretty darn sure you're right and you want to persuade your candidate to not follow their hunches or the received wisdom, but to step out and be more bold or whatever it is that you're aiming for? How do you think about that? Well, it's super situational. There's different approaches. You could appeal to your own experience. You could appeal to the community. You could try to find somebody they trust to tell them from a different point of view. I think that's one of my main strategies is really build relationships wherever I go, because I know I am not from that place in all likelihood. And I'll always be me and the people I'm working with will be from the community that we're trying to serve. I think there's a cheeky answer here, which is tell them to look at the polling, which is one that we've tried. And sometimes that works. And sometimes that reinforces that their opinion is the one grounded in real logic and community wisdom. And ours is the facts and figures approach. But I think that it always is going to be a blended approach. Like Daniel said, meeting people where they're at, I think that one size does not fit all. And I think that's what's special about our approach. Not that it's so unique, but we really try to embed ourselves, not just in the community, but the candidate's family. What does the candidate's sister feel about this topic? And we were lucky in Memphis to have really great relationships with the kitchen cabinet and Paul's inner circle. And a lot of those folks were extremely key in contributing to our knowledge of Memphis, of Paul, of how to approach working with him in the city. And so I think that the answer will always be custom made to the situation. But I think the most important answer, if for anyone listening, is don't assume that you are right. I think that we've been blessed to have a lot of experience in this short number of years that we've been in politics, seven or eight years for both of us. And every year, I look back at the last year and say, wow, I didn't know anything. And I am hoping that'll continue in my life. My life is certainly like that. I've really enjoyed talking to you both. You strike me as very thoughtful and committed people. And it's just very inspiring to talk to people like that who are out there doing the hard work. And I appreciate it. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I failed to? I would love to briefly talk about the Campaign Workers Guild. Oh, in fact, I meant to ask you about that because it was on your LinkedIn profile and I have been paying attention to unions moving into the progressive movement lately. I talked to the guy who started the Progressive Workers Union, which when he was at Sierra Club, and I don't really know much about the Campaign Workers Guild, although I have reached out to people unsuccessfully who are involved. Tell me about what what's going on there, what you know. Absolutely. So... I was pretty lucky to be in a group of folks in conference calls on freeconferencecall.com in the wake of the Bernie campaign in 2016 to really discuss what this could look like. And by this, I mean a union by and for campaign workers. There are so many of us whose passion was really harvested with, I would say, suboptimal working conditions. You know, I think sleeping on a cot, not knowing the folks whose home you're sleeping in is a really common experience for campaign workers, especially field folk and especially on presidential campaigns. And there's a group of us coming, especially from Bernie World, who really felt that the campaign had sort of taken advantage of our goodwill and youthful enthusiasm to use our labor. And it's extremely, extremely common story. But ultimately, in 2017, the conference calls got a little bit more serious. And I was really fortunate to be one of the first members of the Campaign Workers Guild Executive Council. And we had this very 
flat leadership structure where members were really invited to like contribute their thoughts on what this union was going to be. And honestly, some of my most proud experiences in politics have been through CWG. And I do think that we were the first campaign union of its type to really seek to unionize and represent and bargain on behalf of campaign workers across America. And I was really proud to be able to actually organize and bargain for contracts for a number of state parties and campaigns, especially in 2020. And some of those contracts ended up winning provisions for some of all of the coordinated campaign members in Biden's race in 2020. And I, yeah, I just wanted to lift up CWG and the work that they're continuing to do because there are communications firms, state parties, coordinated campaigns, statewide campaigns all across America. And I think most importantly, even beyond the contract provisions that workers are winning, workers are realizing that their organizing can tangibly change people's lives, can tangibly change workplaces. And for me, it's been some of the most direct impact that I've seen organizing have. I'm glad you took the chance to say that. And I, I'm going to try to investigate it a little bit more and see if I can't get somebody to talk about it more on the show. Yeah, that'd be great. Dan, anything else you want to say? Thanks for having us on. It's been an incredible year for us. We had no idea at the beginning of this year that Vote Shift uh, would take off like it has. And we're you know, really excited to continue electing incredible folks uh, up and down the ballot in 2024 and beyond. I hope that we've built this sustainable organization that will be around for a long time to come. Any final word, Griff? Workers everywhere, unite. Seek to unionize your workplace. Check out campaignworkerskill.com. Love each other. And thanks for having us on. You're welcome. That was Daniel Darriso and Griff Gray. They're at VoteShift.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit DemocracyGroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.